Hey, Jim. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Little Things First Podcast. So good that's, to be back and see you are. again. Yeah. Who are um, we talking to? We are, I'm really excited. We're going to talk to Natalie Wexler today. Some people may know her. She's the author of The Knowledge Gap, which is all over the place right now. The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. Ooh. Came out in 2019. Okay. And then she's also the co-author with Judith Hockman of The Writing Revolution, A Guide to Advancing Thinking Through Writing in All Subjects and Grades. And that was in 2017. So I'm really excited to... Uh, talk with Natalie today, and okay. uh, she can share some of her insights about how to fix education. All right, I'm so glad she's willing to join us. Okay, here we go. Let's call and see if she's there. Thanks, Natalie. Natalie Wexler. Hi, Natalie. This is Jim Martin. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Sure, sure. I'm happy to, to do that. I'm happy to speak with you. Yeah, and I'm here with my colleague, Tracy Van Deventer. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Tracy. Thank you so much for finding time to visit with us. Oh, sure. No, no problem. Um, just sitting out on my porch. So if there's any background oh. noise, that, <laughs> Sounds that <lovely>. may be why. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad day here. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I take it you guys are... Somewhere out west. Yes, yeah. we're in Utah, actually. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, well, well, we gave a little bit of an introduction to the books that you've written, but maybe you could tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Um, well, I, um, I mean, I've done a number of things, but for the past 10 years or so, I've been a journalist writing about education. And in the past three years, um, I've authored or co-authored a couple of books about education. Uh, one called The Writing Revolution, which I co-authored with Judith Hockman, and is really directed at teachers, and it's, it's kind of a step-by-step -step guide in um, teaching writing and also teaching content and analytical thinking at the same time. And then the more recent one, which came out last year, is The Knowledge Gap, which focuses on primarily on elementary literacy instruction, primarily reading comprehension. Hmm. Um, so that's uh, pretty much me. <laughs> that's great. So um, what drew you to education? Like, you know, what, what caused you to be interested in that as a topic? Well, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I suppose to some extent it goes back a long way. My mother was a teacher, but uh, more immediately, um, about uh, 10 years ago, I got interested in uh, education reform in Washington, D.C., where there's a, been a lot of activity. We have almost 50% of our students are in charter schools, and and there's a, a very large, what is commonly called, achievement gap. And um, I thought this was really important to figure out why there was this gap, basically, in test scores between kids at the higher and lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, it seemed to me that, you know, we think of education as an engine of social mobility, and we're not making good on that promise. And so I, I started to write about it, um, partly because I saw there really, I mean, there was so much going on in D.C., and there really wasn't enough coverage, and partly because I wanted to figure this out, and writing about something is how, often how I figure things out. And uh, so, but what I, I stumbled across was 
an explanation for a lot of the problems that we see that really wasn't getting much attention and uh, that was, you know, much bigger than what was going on in D.C. That was really a national problem, and, and that's what led me to write the book, The Knowledge Gap. So um, it, the uh, subtitle of The Knowledge Gap is The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. So is it giving away too much for you to reveal what that hidden cause is? <laughs> No, not at all. I'm happy to reveal that. Um, I mean, it's pretty complicated, so it's, you, you're, you're, there's still going to be some new information in the book, if, even if I explain it briefly. And everybody um, should get the book. It's an excellent book, <laughs> by the way. Well, th thank you. Um, basically, what I realized was, you know, everybody looks, and I started out looking at high school as where these problems are the, the most severe, um, and at elementary school as sort of the bright spot in education reform, the test scores were going up a little bit and um, the gap was narrowing a little bit, but then it all seemed to fall apart in high school. And what I stumbled across, I mean, it was really, it was explained to me, I don't know that I would have <laughs> figured this out on my own, that really the problems that we see that become so obvious in high school have, a, a lot of them have their roots in elementary school and primarily in the way we teach reading B both the decode the decoding side of reading, but I really fo focused on the comprehension side of reading, and that is generally taught as a set of skills and strategies, like finding the main idea or making inferences. And the theory is that if kids just get good at those skills, it doesn't really matter that much what they're practicing them on, but they'll they'll master those skills and they'll be able to apply them to any text down the road uh, to gain knowledge from it and get meaning out of it. And what I discovered also was that cognitive science has pretty much determined that this is not really the way reading comprehension works, that what's really important is not just sort of some general skill at finding the main idea, but knowledge, knowledge of the topic that you're reading about. And also, you know, if you have general academic knowledge and vocabulary, you're going to be in a better position to read and understand anything. And so the way to boost reading comprehension is really to build kids' knowledge. And it's through that greater knowledge that they acquire, greater vocabulary, and a, and a greater ability to understand pretty much anything that's going to be thrown at them. And what we've been doing is really the opposite of that, because especially in the last 20 years, uh, schools, especially schools where test scores are low, rather than immersing kids in the kinds of subjects that could build that kind of knowledge, social studies and science and the arts, they've been cutting back on those subjects to spend more time on the quote-unquote tested subjects, reading and math. And with reading, that means a lot of time spent on these reading comprehension skills and strategies that are largely meaningless. I think that there's so much truth to that because these skills and strategies are are really like broken into chunks that show up on the test, right? So that's why teachers feel so much pressure to try to fill, oh, I got to make sure my kids know how to answer this type of question, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I I would say that this uh, con this concept of reading comprehension skills and strategies pre-existed high stakes testing, but I would also say it's high stakes testing has definitely exacerbated that that trend. Um, and it's it's true that if you look at these tests, 
they seem to be asking kids to demonstrate these very skills, you know, make an inference mm-hmm. and what's the main idea. But of course, if you don't have the background knowledge to understand the passages on yeah. the test, you don't get an opportunity to demonstrate your skills. So, but it, it's it's hard, I think, for uh, teachers, educators, administrators to see that connection. Um, and that's partly because the, the content that's on those reading tests is not connected to any content. It's not designed to be connected to any content kids might be learning in school. Right. Because they're, they're thinking, well, we really want to test. We don't want to test knowledge. We want to test skills. So we'll, we'll just pick topics, you know, that, that kids have general knowledge of. Random. But there are, there's some, yeah, like the weather or whatever. But, you know, it, there are kids who just have a lot more knowledge and vocabulary than others. And the ones that have less of that, the kind of knowledge and vocabulary that is required to understand these test patches, passages, no matter what they're about, those kids are always going to be at a disadvantage, the ones that come at it with less knowledge and vocabulary. And I really like that, um, going you know, into that model of thinking that we don't want to just test their knowledge, but if we don't give them some background, they can't draw from that information to be able to access the text, right? And I know in Utah, actually, they have tried hard to build social studies curriculum into the reading content focus questions or science. So that's Mm -hmm. nice because I think if you are teaching that curriculum that's expected, hopefully you are kind of cross- you know, pollinating, if you will, the background knowledge necessary to be able to access the text. But it's a tricky, it's a tricky deal. Yeah. And I don't know um, to what extent, I don't know what tests Utah uses, but I don't know. So I don't know to what extent the specific knowledge that's in the curriculum is being reflected in what's on those tests. And Mm. um, Louisiana is a state that is now piloting um, an experiment with a new kind of reading test that is actually connected to the state's uh, social studies and ELA curriculum, which is being used, I've been told, by about 80% of the classrooms in the state. So if you have that many schools using the same curriculum, then you can theoretically at least design a test that, that lines up with that curriculum. Um, but in most states, that's, you know, there's, there's a lot more variation. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens, and I've seen this, you know, when, when, especially at the elementary level, when the same teacher is responsible usually for teaching both ELA and social studies and often math and science, um, you know, what they tend to emphasize with an eye to the test, even when they're teaching social studies is the the skills, you know, so it'll be a social studies text, but they'll, they'll still be putting those skills in the foreground. I I talked to a teacher here in DC, this is a few years ago when I was researching the book, who was like a a fourth or fifth grade teacher, and she was supposed to be teaching social studies as well as ELA. But she said to me, you know, I, what my kids really need to do well on the test, they need those skills. I mean, there's not going to be anything on the test about where the Navajo resided or what sedimentary rock is. Uh, so she just glossed over that content and tried to focus on skills. And I think that's that happens in a lot of classrooms. Mm. So the solution then really is for us to, as educators, um, make sure that we don't shortchange social studies and uh, science and the fine arts and all of those things that build kids' background knowledge, I guess. 
Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, it's, you know, I, it takes a group effort because uh, you need a, a building leader, a principal who, who also understands this, who's not, you know, coming in and looking for what skill are you teaching this week. Um, but yes, I think that that's, uh, I think we need a, a, a paradigm shift or something where we realize that as, as Dan Willingham, a cognitive psychologist, has said, teaching content is teaching reading. Uh, you know, it's not a question of first you learn to read and then you read to learn. Part of learning to read, part of learning to understand what you read is learning content, acquiring knowledge, and the vocabulary that goes with it. Interesting. So what what would you suggest for schools that have predominantly um, kids from uh, – you know, low SES backgrounds who maybe um, aren't coming to school with vocabulary that is necessarily um, prioritized in school, or they might not have knowledge that's prioritized in school. I mean, how do we go about building their background knowledge so that it's comparable to what other kids might be coming into school with who have maybe a more privileged background? Yeah, well, I think the most promising pathway at the moment is um, to at first a school or district to adopt one of the more newly developed elementary literacy curricula that focus on content and building knowledge rather than on skills. There are six or eight of them now and you know they're all somewhat different. They all cover different bodies of knowledge in different ways. Uh, but they all have in common a couple of things. And one is that they're organized by topic rather than by the skill of the week. Uh, and they spend at least a couple of weeks on the topic, uh, sometimes more, sometimes months. And the other thing they all have in common is that they all have the teacher reading aloud to the entire class from books or texts that the kids could not access themselves. Um, that's particularly true in the, the younger grade levels. But, you know, it continues to be important through, through, throughout elementary and often into middle school, if not beyond, because kids can take in much more sophisticated content and vocabulary through listening and through discussion than through their own reading. And that's true on average through middle school. Um, so, and then once they have become familiar with the concepts and vocabulary through listening and discussion, they're in a much better position to understand texts on their own that contain those concepts and vocabulary. Uh, so, so I think that is, you know, there's a limit to what an individual teacher can do. They can do something, but building knowledge is a gradual, cumulative process. And an individual teacher, it doesn't have control over what happens the year before or the year after. So really, uh, you, you know, the, the most effective way to build that kind of knowledge and vocabulary is through a content-focused curriculum that extends across grade levels. Do you think that there are some uh, pockets of excellence with this model? I, you referred to Louisiana really jumping into this and, and trying to build that um, consistency across the state. Do you have some examples if people were interested? They could go and look into what a different district is doing or some place that's specifically addressing this? Yeah, you know, I wish there was some kind of like central clearinghouse. For this. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what I'm looking for. Be, All the answers in one spot. It would be really helpful. I don't know of a central clearinghouse. I, you know, I do know, I have seen 
classrooms all over the country that are doing this work. They, they've adopted these curricula and it's amazing. And the teachers are amazed at what their kids can do. And it's, it is to see this in action, I think is, is really the best way of, of understanding the potential of this change. So personally, I mean, I, um, well, one of the things I did for the book was I followed a couple of classrooms, elementary classrooms through a school year, one using the standard uh, skills-focused approach to comprehension and the other using one of these new newer curricula. Um, and that was, that happened, they both happened to be charter schools. That was a, a charter school network uh, that was using the content-focused curriculum. Uh, there's a charter network in D.C. called Center City. But um, there are also some large urban school districts that have adopted these kinds of curricula. I don't know of any on the West Coast that are coming to mind, but um, or in really the middle of the country. Well, Detroit has adopted one. Baltimore has adopted one. Tennessee is also, um, there's a lot of activity going on in that state, um, thanks partly to a, a nonprofit there that has encouraged this. But I've been, I've been to several districts in Tennessee that are doing um, really exciting work with their students. And then um, there's a district in Texas called Aldine that's near Houston or in Houston that's um, just starting this. So they're, they're scattered across the country. Um, and, you know, I, I think you, you can find some of this on Twitter. There, there are, uh, there's sort of an edgy Twitter um, that, that there is discussion and, and teachers uh, coming forward. There's a, an organization called um, Curriculum Matters that is a group of um, administrators of school districts that are doing this work. So that's another place to look. So um, is it, is the language arts core curriculum, is that useful in any way? I mean, does it just need to be like, you know, the, the um, common core, does that just need to be tossed out the window or um, is oh, there some well, value to it? <laughs> well, the common core and standards that sort of, you know, are similar um, is a really complicated and interesting topic. <laughs> and I, I think the, the common core has been widely misunderstood. Um, it, 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 you know, if you look at the standards, it looks like a list of skills. Um, you know, students will be able to yeah. uh, connect a claim to evidence in the text. It doesn't tell you what text or anything. And I think a lot of people took from that the idea that it didn't really matter what text, as long as, you know, it was complex. And uh, I think teachers also got the message there needed to be more nonfiction. But, you know, really what the authors of those literacy standards intended was they, they wanted to get away from this skills-focused approach to comprehension instruction. They wanted to get away from leveled reading, which is goes, you know, hand-in-hand hand with it. Um, but those messages didn't come through. They, they were really in the supplemental materials to the Common Core, and a lot of people did not read those supplemental materials. So what has happened in some many places is a kind of marriage of uh, nonfiction and complex text with these, with skills, with, with pretty much the same skills focused approach, but with the addition of new skills, common core skills, the skills of reading nonfiction text, you know, and, and like text features and, you know, and the theory is, well, if you know what a glossary is or whatever, that'll help you read any nonfiction text. 
Well, it might help a little bit, but if you don't know anything about the topic, it's probably not going to help you very much. Um, and, you know, so with nonfiction, uh, the skills-focused approach is even less helpful because there's more background knowledge generally assumed. Now, at the same time, I will add that some people did get the message from the Common Core that it was important to start building kids' knowledge through a coherent content-focused curriculum beginning as early as possible. And that is really why we have these newly developed elementary literacy curricula. Uh, those are the people who got that message developed those curricula and the people, the districts and schools that are adopting those curricula are getting that message too. So it's, I think the common core has been kind of a double-edged sword. I, I, I think when I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm remembering some times I've been in professional learning for teachers, and they've been asked to take those common core standards and break them apart. You look at the verb, and you look at the action and how you know that it happened, and really it's like trying to break it apart like it's a recipe, you know, or building a, you know, a bookshelf kind of thing that you mm. look at those key words. And in lots of ways, I, I agree that that has taken us away from really knowing if kids are comprehending right? Uh, love that. But it makes me wonder about all that time I spent doing that in those learning yeah. days. <laughs> well, I mean, you're in very good company. I think, <laughs> you know, I've talked to a lot of teachers who have told me that, you know, they realized that a lot of the, what they were doing wasn't really working and it's not a comfortable feeling. Um, and I, I think that is one of the difficult things about change, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's very hard to say, oh, when you, especially you spent years, a lot of teachers have spent years doing those kinds of things yeah. in the sincere belief that it was really helping sure. kids, especially the, those, the lowest achieving kids. Yeah. And to be told, well, actually, you know, not only was it not helping them, it may have been holding them back. That's a very hard message to hear. So I've been um, looking forward to this interview for quite some time. We had you scheduled a while back, and I was sick. So um, <laughs> yeah. we, um, I, I was just made aware of a, a study that came out of the Fordham Institute, which tends to be a conservative, more of a conservative think tank. But they just did a study that said that teachers that looked at how um, longitudinal, longitudinal data that showed that uh, it was it came out of the federal government, the data, but it showed how teachers who taught social studies uh, more of the day actually had better reading and language arts scores. Um, yeah, so I'm familiar with that study. Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah. Just so, uh, read, I just read yeah, something about it. Yeah. What, um, what's your yeah. reaction to it? Well, um, first of all, of course, it's correlation, not causation, but it did look at this pretty large uh, data set, and uh, it turned out that they followed these kids from first grade to fifth grade. They looked at their reading scores, and they looked at how much time they spent on different subjects. And the only subject that was correlated with um, an increase in their reading scores or higher reading scores was social studies. Um, more time spent on ELA or reading did not correlate mm. with, with more, uh, with higher reading scores. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting, so I think this study does tell us something, it suggests something. Uh, and I think it's even... Uh, to my mind, more uh, significant than it appears because uh, most elementary social studies curricula 
are pretty superficial, especially in the early grades. Mm. So, I mean, they're, they're more superficial than these uh, new, newly developed literacy curricula that I'm talking about. Those, especially some of them, like the one I'm most familiar with, which is core knowledge language arts, includes much more of a, you know, more rigorous history and, and geography and science than uh, most elementary school students are getting. So, to to say that even that that fairly non rigorous social studies could cause this boost in or not cause but is correlated with this boost in reading scores. Imagine if they were getting really great exposure to history and geography, et cetera. Um, so, and the other the other thing to bear in mind is that these were self reported um, amounts of time. So teachers were reporting how much time they spent on each of these subjects, right. and. You know, in my experience, there's a there may be half an hour of the day allotted for social studies at the end of the day, but that often gets devoted to reading or math. And teachers may say, "Oh yes, we spend you know half an hour, forty five minutes a day," uh, but often you don't get that much time on yeah. social studies. So I do think it it's an important indicator that more time spent on content, particularly social studies, really can help kids become better readers. If you were, um, of course, we wish we could be queen of the world, but if you could be queen of the world and you could leave our listeners with a couple of little things that they could do to help build that, you know, that broader knowledge, what would be maybe two things that you would suggest uh, that they could start doing next week? Well, great. I'm glad you answered, asked that question. Um, and I think these are things that can be done even if you're in a school or district that is doing remote learning or hybrid learning. I would say the first thing is to, when you ask questions or you set a, a, an essential question or a guiding question is to put the content in the foreground rather than the skill. So, you know, um, not like how does a tech? How does the structure of a text help us understand it or something? But you know, yeah. something that if you're if it's a book about whales, ask a question about whales, like how are whales different from sharks or something, something that you know it's not about like okay now we're going to learn how to make an inference, but it requires kids to make an inference inherently. It's just embedded in that question. That's how they learn to make inferences or comparisons or whatever. And the other thing is to, as I said, you know, these newer curricula, they, they actually spend time on a particular topic. The current, the skills-focused approach, you know, you could read a book about clouds one day and zebras the next, and that doesn't give kids enough time to absorb the information and, and get it into their long-term memories. So I would say, in addition to, to foregrounding the content in the questions that you ask, read from a, a group or a set of texts that are all about the same general subject, sea mammals or whatever, the solar system. Um, and, uh, you know, spend a, a couple of weeks, if you can, on that topic. And, you know, individual teachers, it's a bit of a burden, but they can do that. You may need to supplement, if you're using a basal reader, you may find that, yeah, there's a, a, not, a few nonfiction texts here and there, but they don't really provide very much information. So you may need to supplement them with some additional texts. And some of those texts should be texts that you or an, ex an ex expert reader reads aloud rather than that kids are reading on their own. Mm -hmm. So kind of themes go across mm -hmm. a couple of weeks. Got it. 
Thank you. So, um, sure. Natalie, if if you could, one of the questions we always ask our guests at the end is, if you could go back in a time machine and talk to your younger self, um, give your younger self maybe some advice, what would you say? And so mm-hmm. we pose that question to you now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, um, I gee, hard to know where to begin. <laughs> we all have good advice for our younger selves, right? <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, I really um, wish I'd looked more closely at education a long time ago. And, uh, you know, somehow, I, I, you know, people have been talking about this general issue that I've been focusing on for the last few years. They've been focusing on it for 30 years, but they really, um, I thought I discovered them and, you know, E.D. Hirsch wrote a book in 1987 called Cultural Literacy that made many of the same points. But I, I think that there, those points either got lost in, in a lot of political stuff that didn't really matter that much or they just really weren't read or listened to because they were couched in, in not so much in a, an engaging journalistic, you know, tone, but but more of a dry academic tone. So people just weren't reading those things. And I, I think it would have been great if someone, either me or some other person who had a more journalistic style, uh, could have approached this issue, you know, decades ago. Um, maybe Maybe we would have... Gone, gone down a somewhat different path. Interesting. Very good. Well, thank you so much again for taking time out of your uh, Saturday to be with us while we're taping. And we are so grateful. Uh, you have brought up some really good points for us to consider. And I think that you've given us also some good, you know, next steps as we, you know, continue to build that background knowledge, especially I'm thinking about some of our socioeconomically kind of, um, you know, kids that have been impacted and just haven't maybe had as much access to the vocabulary and the background knowledge that is holding them back beyond just oh they don't have those skills right so i i am so grateful thank you so much well thanks very much for having me it was a real pleasure speaking with you yeah your your work is really inspiring so thank you very much natalie for investing in it yeah well thank you reminder knowledge gap and writing revolution everybody go grab it (laughs) right thanks again thank you (laughs) okay bye-bye bye-bye